to authority, which is where we were up to as we are journeying through the book of 1 Peter together. The fact that in the entirety of Scripture, the word rebel or rebellion is never listed as a positive. Not once is it ever listed as a positive. Our only reason to ever disobey governing authority is out of our prior, our primary obedience first to Christ. The reality is, some of us just want to stick it to the man. We've just got that heart that just wants to kick against authority. It annoys us that we are so switched on to the truth that's going on when everybody else isn't, and we just have this heart that just wants to like fight back. God calls that sin. That's a rebellious heart. Now, you can be out of balance the other way as well. A fearful heart committed to obeying the government because the thought of disobeying them is just too much for you to handle. You might theoretically agree with uh, the fact that you must obey God first and you might have to disobey the government, but you would never actually get there. You would never find a reason compelling enough because it might just be easier to wait and see. Right? So these are the two kind of hearts that we can sometimes see in church. Now the reality is a rebellious heart and a fearful heart will never truly stand on the Word of God, will never truly stand correctly when it comes to a case where we have to disobey the government. Because that can only come correctly and rightly out of our prior deep obedience to God being our only reason, okay? Our heart in the right place. So, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Let's talk about the reality of how this can play out. And we've got this wonderful example, and it's called COVID and the vaccine. Now, during COVID, we obeyed the government lockdown, And we didn't gather together as a church for, what was it, about six weeks off the top of my head? Give or take, can't remember exactly. We did that. Why did we do that? Even though the Scriptures command us to gather together. Well, we did that to care for the body of Christ. Because at that stage, we had no idea just how full-on this thing was going to be. Was it going to wipe out 50% of our church? What was it going to do? None of us were quite sure. So to care for the body of Christ, we agreed that we would follow that instruction uh, to protect our people. Now that would have annoyed the rebellious hearts. Those whose attitude is just, no, the government said it, so let's just stand against it no matter what. The problem is, we see this in Scripture, don't we? In the persecution of Saul, what did the church do? They scattered. They broke up. Why did they do that? Because it's rather stupid to just gather and be killed, right? So they, we know a lot of these people end up being martyrs, but they're not foolish about it. So they scattered in order to protect the church, right? So we see this. It's, it's smart to protect people in the church. On the flip side, we saw COVID play out a bit further down the track and it wasn't as bad as predicted and then we saw laws come out in Victoria where you could go to the pub but not 
to church. That, that actually happened at one stage. We agreed as elders at that stage that if the Queensland government brought out a rule to say that we couldn't gather, we would defy the rule and we would, in fact, gather. And the fearful hearts would have gone, oh no, you mean we might actually disobey the government? Yes, because in that case, it was wrong for them to try and stop us. See, our concern was obedience to Christ, to care for the body, not a rebellious heart, not a fearful heart, but prayerfully a wise heart as we seek to obey God. Okay, this is what it boils down to in reality. By the way, this is important why it matters who your elders are, because you as a church are called to be in submission to your elders, right? It's clear in Scripture, be in submission to those placed in authority over you, right? So it matters because in cases which are grey, which are unsure, you're called to be in submission to those placed in authority over you. It matters how this plays out. So Peter has established the principle for us, and now what he's going to do is he's going to begin to apply that for us into some challenging situations. He's going to take the principle, which we saw last week, of submission to authority, and he's now going to apply it to things that we are going to have to wrestle with, which have direct consequences for us in our understanding of what this means. The reality is, even in the church... We like the idea of submission far more than the reality. True? I don't think I've ever met a person that does submission well. I don't think that person exists. We could be talking about wives submitting to husbands, we could be talking about church submitting to elders, or we could be talking about all of us in our submission to Jesus. All of us submit well, until we disagree with what we're being asked to submit to. I'm a firm believer in submission to Jesus until I disagree. Wives affirm submission to their husbands in the church until they disagree. The church is in firm submission to the elders until they disagree, right? We, we all have this heart which says, oh no, but I'm right now, I'm going to justify why I can disagree, Right? This is the rebellious human heart that we all struggle with. Peter knows this, and so he's going to really zero in on this principle and say, listen up, church, this applies deep and it applies thoroughly, and it's something we all need to wrestle with. All right, open your Bible up to 1 Peter 2, and we're just going to look at 18 to 20 this morning. 1 Peter 2. 18 through to 20. Applying the principle of submission to a real situation. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favour if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief for suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favour with God. 
Amen. That's right. Here we are on Mother's Day. And look at the topic we have. But this is what happens when you uh, just preach through books of the Bible. And this is what comes up. That's right. We are talking about slavery. So we need to give a couple of opening remarks to help us understand our context. All right. Firstly, the Bible does not advocate or support slavery. Now, we have to understand that. Slavery, however, is in the Bible, and it does happen in the Old Testament. So, what do we do? Uh, Are all of us Bible-believing Christians advocates of slavery? No. The Bible never advocates slavery. It allows for slavery, but what's important to note is this, is that the longest you could be a slave was six years, and on the seventh year, you had to be freed. Okay? So there was no such thing in the Old Testament as lifelong slavery in the sense of on the seventh year, you were set free. In essence, it worked like bankruptcy, right? You, you were caught in a situation, you couldn't repay your debts, you couldn't get out of this tip, difficult situation you're in, and so you could sell yourself into slavery to handle that problem you're in, and on the seventh year, you were required by the law of God to be set free. Okay, no such thing as generational slavery. However, for those of us who have been in the church for quite a while, you might know you could become a bond slave, which was you voluntarily submitted yourself to slavery for life because you had a good master, you enjoyed the situation you're in to some extent, and so you could voluntarily become a slave for life. When the Bible calls us slaves of God, it uses that word. We, are, we have voluntarily given ourselves to Jesus as his slaves for life. Amen. So that's, that's, that's what it means. So yes, it's in the Old Testament. The Bible never advocates for it, but the longest you could be a slave was seven years. It worked a lot like bankrupt, bankruptcy today. Now, it was different, of course. We are in the time now of Roman domination. Now, you had no chance of basically being set free from slavery in this period of time. So it was for life. If you had children as a slave, your children were the property of the owner, the slave owner. Okay, so very different situation. So you're a slave for life, you are property, you are owned. However, if your mind immediately goes to the black slavery in America that occurred, it's not quite the same. Uh, In this period of time, it was actually normal to educate your slaves it was actually quite common for the slaves to be more highly educated than their owners. Okay, so you might have a slave and you would train them as a physician. Or you might have a a slave and you train them as an incredible musician. And so there were a lot of slaves who actually were viewed in a reasonably decent rung of society uh, as they were trained and educated. But that wasn't everyone. So a lot of slaves were in that situation. Some, however, of course had a terrible master, and in that situation, they could be beaten, sexually assaulted on a whim. So this is the tension. This is what we've got to wrestle with. That is the context that Peter is now writing into. This is what Peter's writing into. It's a big deal, isn't it? Next question, though, is, so why doesn't the New Testament ever directly try and end slavery? Why doesn't Peter go, you know, this is an absolute abomination, let's bring it to an end? Well, again, remember context. We have a fledgling small church against the might of the Roman Empire. 
It's not like they were about to storm Rome and demand that slavery ends. That was beyond them. It wasn't within their capability. So what Peter does, what the New Testament does, is addresses our Christian conduct, both as a slave and a master. How to honour Christ, how to bring glory to Christ for the praise of his name, whether you're a slave or whether you're a master. The reality is, if people are born again, if people are transformed by the coming of the Spirit, that is what will bring about change. Right? This is why the Scripture focuses in on our behaviour, our transformation in Christ, more than the moral imperatives in our world. I'll give you an example. What was the first nation in all of history to completely outline slavery? It was England, it was the British Empire. Why? Because William Wilberforce, a committed Christian, living out his Christianity, fought for the abolition of slavery. Okay, so the transformation of people by the gospel is what leads to the transformation of society. This is why the biblical writers are concerned so much about the proclamation of the good news. If you want to transform this world, you won't do it by picketing, you won't do it by changing your social media profiles, whatever the latest cause is, you won't do it by giving away countless money to countless things, you'll do it by sharing the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus, of salvation in his name, and when people are born again of the Spirit and begin to live a life honouring to Christ, they will begin to transform the world around them. Alright? Preach the gospel. This is the heart of what Peter is actually saying. He can't change Rome by writing a letter. He can change Rome by seeing people come to faith, and as more people come to faith, and more people come to faith, eventually Rome, by 330 AD, announces itself as a Christian nation. Now, that doesn't actually exist, but that's what they announce themselves as, right? The power of the gospel will transform the people around you. So in that light, Peter says to Christian household slaves, submit to your masters. Now, in our translation, it might say with all reverence or something like that, but it literally reads, submit in, with all fear. Now, that's interesting. We need to know that that's what it says. Submit to your master with all fear. This matters because it's a bit like we had last week with our context. It's not they're saying submit to your master because you fear them. It's saying submit to your master because of your fear of God. Right? It's saying submit to your master out of that deep, reverent fear and respect of God. It's so important we understand that. Peter will say in the next chapter twice not to fear people. Right? We know that's not what he's talking about. He says openly, don't fear people, fear God, have respect for God. And so he says, submit out of your fear, your respect of God. Our motivation to submit to those in authority over us is not to do with them. 
It's not because we think they're worthy. It's not whether or not we judge that they deserve our respect. It's because God has told us to submit to those placed in authority over us and we respect and fear God enough to obey him regardless of the master. That's what Peter is saying. It's not about who they are. It's about who God is. And he says, submit to those placed in authority over you. Peter is saying to reject your master is to reject God who has told you to live a life of quiet submission. Right? That's an important principle. It carries a second equally important bit of weight to it. Firstly, you submit to your master regardless of their character because God whom you hold in the utmost respect, has asked you to. And secondly, it means God is always the one with the utmost authority. So therefore, if your master asks you to do something which directly contradicts the word of God, we are still willing to disobey that master, even though there might be consequences, because we obey them and disobey them out of our greater respect for the authority of God. Right? This is why Peter is making it so clear. Your obedience, the reason you submit to a master is because God has told you to. And the only reason you will disobey them is because God has told you to. Right? Hold him as the absolute authority. We should obey God and not give in to fear because we have a higher fear, a deeper reverent respect for God. Slave and master, employee and employer, God is the ultimate king who deserves full obedience from those who would acknowledge his rule. Which brings us to the difficult bit Peter says, submit not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. Now, Peter, again, is not condoning a harsh or cruel master. No, that person will be judged by God. What Peter is saying is that you don't get to decide whether or not to serve your master based on whether or not they're a wicked person. God calls you to submit regardless of that person's character. Right? It's clear. That's what he's saying. Now, he is saying you cannot follow them into disobeying God. Remember? He is where our primary fear sits. But we should obey them up until we are required by following God to disobey. Today, it might break down like this. Let us say you work for a money-hungry, horrible boss, a really, truly awful person whom everybody dislikes. There is simply nothing admirable about them. And Peter says, you can't decide whether or not you should obey what they ask you to do because of their conduct. No. You are required, as you honour Christ, to submit to those in authority over you, regardless of their character or conduct. 
Now, nowadays, because it's nowadays, we just go, well, stuff, you'll get a different job. But remember, in the context here, people couldn't do that. You were stuck there for life. And Peter says their character doesn't dictate your attitude to serve. A good example I'll I'll use is the one Drew used last week because Drew last week looked at Shackrack and Benny, right? The famous story where they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And Drew looked at the fact that they stood on God no matter what. They said, regardless, our God will save us. Even if he doesn't, we'll glorify him anyway. But what we need to know about them is this. The scripture says they were placed in positions of management in Babylon before that. They were serving Nebuchadnezzar, a foreign pagan king who worshipped foreign deities, who sacrificed to foreign gods, who all of his life lived against the law of God, against the word of God, and in every possible way would have stood as an offence to those men. And they served him well. They worked for him as managers. They did their job. They did what they were asked to do. They carried out their business with great conduct, right? The character of the king did not change the fact that they served him with honor until he asked them to do something which directly contradicts the word of God. And that's the turning point. Meanwhile, after the fiery furnace, what do they go on doing? Working in Babylon. All right? That's what, how they continue to conduct themselves. Peter is saying, that is you, as a Christian, your attitude of humility, of, of submission, will continue no matter who the ruler is. You are to conduct yourself well. You are to conduct yourself well. In verse 19, Peter now begins to explain the why of our submission to a harsh or cruel master. The why of our submission to a harsh or cruel master. It brings favour, or as it says here in Greek, it brings the grace of God. Why? Because if our suffering is because of our disobedience to God, if our suffering is because of our own stupid choices, then we shouldn't expect any blessing or reward from God, right? But, says Peter, if you are faithfully honouring God, living for the glory of his name, and you suffer for that, then the grace of God, the joy of our eternal reward is yours. It's waiting for you. The grace of God is poured out on you. The reward of God for being obedient, even though it was going to bring you into conflict with authority. Right? When you know, I've tried to work faithfully, I've done my absolute best for my boss, I've tried to serve them well, but I know that this thing that I've been asked to do is going to bring me into conflict. But I must, because my prior obedience is to God. And we step out and we do it knowing that a punishment awaits because our first fear, our greatest authority is Christ. And so we accept the consequences. And Peter says the grace of God will be poured out on you. As elders, we undertook to work through Peter because we felt as elders 
that it was very relevant to the changing nature of the culture in which we live. Let's just cast our minds back a little bit for those of you who have been Christians for quite a while. If you're new to Christianity, this is all going to be news to you, uh, but this is how it's been. We wind back the clock a fair while, and the church had a somewhat privileged position in culture. The church was viewed in Australia as being relevant, and our opinion on cultural matters was actually listened to. Can you believe that? There was a period of time when the NRL played in Sydney, and if they played on a Sunday, they used to get an evangelist at half-time to preach a gospel message to the stadium. Can you imagine that today? Right, everyone, pause for the gospel. Right, like, but this, this, and, and church ministers were viewed with serious respect. It was a, a job that was considered to be like, this is a, someone we need to respect in society and listen to in society. And, then, and that kind of changed, and we ended up in this more ambivalent period of time where basically the government kind of has been ignoring the church, and the church has been kind of free to do what it wants, but the government stopped listening to the church, right? The church is kind of, the government was like, yeah, you guys do whatever you want to do, but we're just going to get on with the business of running the country. We don't really care about you anymore. That's changed over the last few years. From ambivalence, we've now moved to hostility. The government is now saying, no, we actually disagree with you guys, and in fact, we want to bring it to an end. Now, they haven't attacked the church itself too much yet, but they're ramping up on Christian schools and Christian charities. And not only that, any of you employed by government would now realise that in most government jobs now, you can be fired for putting something on your social media account about Christianity, right? Government jobs are now clamping down, attacking your profession of faith, right? So we've moved now to a hostility period of time. This is challenging. Many want to still cling to the notion that we'll just follow along and be nice and the government will be nice to us. It's just not true. The government is now hostile to the church. This is similar to the situation that Peter was writing to. A church that was facing a very similar situation, a growing persecution from those in authority. So we have to ask ourselves, what is Peter saying? Is he not saying that even if it's a harsh master, or can we say a harsh government, you are to run away, head for the hills, prepare for the worst, cut yourself off? No. No. Peter is saying, even under a harsh government, even under a harsh authority figure, your job is the same. Submit yourself to that authority as much as you can because you are the bringer of the message of hope to people who are living under that harsh government. You are the messenger of good news. Why would we be so selfish as to flee with the very message that people need to hear under a harsh master? Right? We are the ambassadors of Christ. So what Peter has been doing, if you remember chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, is he's been grounding you in the realities of the gospel. He's been grounding you on the truth of our eternal home in Christ. Why? 
Because if you realize you have an eternal, undefiled home that lies ahead, you can deal with the harsh persecutions of this life without fear. That's why Peter's been doing it. He's grounding us in the deep truths of Christ so that we can submit without fear in a tough period of time. Peter has been. And now once again, once, once again, wants you to reorientate your vision. Church, if I've ever said anything important to you, this is one of them, right? Listen, listen. This is the crux of the message of all the New Testament writers. We are so used to analyzing failure and success from an earthly perspective, right? We all do it. My business is going well. God is blessing me. I'm making money. God is blessing me. I'm not suffering from persecution. God is blessing me. Peter says, garbage. Garbage. You'll be blessed. You'll be rewarded when you suffer, not for doing the wrong thing, but when you suffer for doing the right thing when you are unfairly treated because you're obeying Jesus, then you'll be rewarded. When the world persecutes you for being a Christian, then God will bless you. Right? This is what the whole New Testament writers are trying to get across to us, that our gaze too often dwells on earthly things when they're constantly trying to lift our gaze to our eternal home and say, Focus there. Know what's coming because if you do, you will endure what happens today. That's the message of the Scripture. It's not about all this constant earthly prosperity or safety. It's about your eternal prosperity and reward and enduring what comes today. Now, this is a biblical principle that we read again and again and again. Jesus got it through to us so many times that we are ambassadors of the good news, right? Uh, Luke 6.32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. There's no good loving those who love you. Even sinners can do that, Luke 6.35, but love your enemies. Do what is good and lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. How is He gracious to the ungrateful and evil through the, the context? Through you, because you continue to lend to those who will never pay it back to you. You continue to love those who hate you. In the middle of this awful, tough, persecuted life that we might have to live in in the coming years, Peter and all of the New Testament writers, Jesus say, focus on your eternal reward and live it out, the good news. Continue to love, continue to give generously, continue to, to live out the sacrifice of Christ so that others can see and hear and taste the good news as you proclaim it to them. That is what they're trying to get through to us. Stop assessing our life from earthly perspectives and lift our eyes to heaven. You know, you might think a huge economic crash is coming. 
lot of people think it might be, maybe it is, bigger, bigger than the Great Depression a lot of people were thinking. So you might want to sell up and buy yourself a few acres and get more self-sufficient. That's great. As long as your goal is so that you will be able to care for Christians and non-Christians alike and continue to share the good news. If your goal is to hide away and retreat and hide from a nasty world, then you fear man more than you fear God. You are not loving your enemy. You are disobedient and not focused on Christ. Right? Our focus is Christ and his glory. That's why Peter says, out of fear of God, you will submit to your masters. Jesus said again, Matthew 16, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Right? We're not about saving our life. We're about giving up our life to serve others, to care for others, for the glory of Christ and his eternal reward. Peter does not tell us to wave a white flag. He tells us to keep marching forward, proclaiming the good news. Many of us know the famous quote from Jim Elliott, "'Tis no fool who gives what he cannot keep to, to gain what he cannot lose." And too often we would say, "'Tis a fool who gives what he cannot keep," when if he planned right, he could have kept it a bit longer. Right? That's kind of how we tend to live. God, through this word, through Peter, is saying, no, serve me when it gets hard. Honour me and only refuse when it clearly goes against my reward. And if you are punished for that, I will reward you in heaven. You know what Peter doesn't say about the growing persecution? Welcome to our series on six steps to running your business better. Welcome to the next series on seven steps to a more successful 2023. How to store treasures on earth for the coming persecution. Right? Zero. Zero of that in the scripture. What does Peter say? Obey your harsh masters, except for when they contradict Jesus. Have enough faith and, and respect of God that when you do have to contradict them, when you do have to disobey, you will, even though you know you're going to get punished. That's Peter's message. Your response to this will tell you if you're living for Jesus, his glory and your eternal joy with him, or if you are still clinging to the world and its desires. Rebellious hearts or fearful hearts will not honour Christ in persecution. Only hearts whose prior and first obedience is always to Christ. In closing, you could view this message this morning as being negative or difficult or being slapped with a fish again. But what Peter is saying is this, and I just want you to grasp this. What Peter is saying is this. You can know that the promises of God are so sure, are so certain that you can endure anything for the joy that awaits. That's what Peter is saying. The promises of God are so certain, are so sure that if you cling to those promises, you can endure anything for the joy that awaits. Jesus died for you, 
He paid the penalty of your sin. He's given you eternal life where you will live in a perfect home forevermore. You will see him face to face and you must shift your gaze from the world to Christ. So seeing him face to face, live for his glory, whatever the cost. That is the message of Peter. And he calls slaves to obey even a harsh master. Church, we need to live such lives in this world that we glorify Christ through our behaviours, regardless of how difficult it might be, because the promises of Christ are sure. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is challenging to us, Lord. We, all of us fight with the desires of the flesh. All of us fight with the desires of this earth. Lord, may you help each of us to transform and shift our game. Lord, focus in on living for the, the, that moment we get to behold your face. We can endure the ridicule. We can endure the unfair. We can endure the unjust. We can endure the persecution. Lord, may we proclaim your good news, accepting the consequences, good and bad, because we live for the light of your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.